see you out here today. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Looking forward to uh, sharing God's word with you. I'm excited uh, about embarking on this journey through the, the book of Romans that we, uh, Pastor Ben, began with us last week. Uh, for the last 20 years of Living Water's existence, I've wanted to uh, preach through the book of Romans, but to be perfectly honest, I could never really work up the courage actually to do that. Now, someone's like, you know, what, what's the big deal? How, why do you got to work up courage to, to go through the book of, of Romans? Well, it's, it's not that I'm afraid of what is actually contained in Romans. Uh, on the contrary, God has used the, the, the 16 chapters of the book of Romans over the course of probably 2009 until now to, to make some radical changes uh, not only in my view of salvation, but uh, my view of issues like uh, election and really how you actually live as a Christian. So I'm really thankful for what God has done uh, in my heart as far as it relates to the book of Romans because it's been very helpful to me. Uh, so my, my fear is not the contents of the book of Romans. The fear is the contents of my character and my ability. You know, how can I, uh, a person who's a mere human, uh, finite in, in every way, uh, one who struggles with, with sin every day, how can I adequately and accurately communicate the, the great theological depth and the wonderful hope that's actually in, contained in this epistle? And, and I'm not alone in, in this concern. Uh, of all the books of the Bible that have been written about over the years, perhaps Romans has been the one that's been the most written about. It, uh, the commentaries that we have to study uh, for the book of Romans, and it's just, there's like 20 of them that we're using right now. It's, it's actually far too many. Uh, so uh, people have, have, have written about it, but my concern and the concern of others is, is kind of summed up in a quote that a guy by the name of Grant Osborne uh, gathered together in his commentary on Romans that he pulled from, from the great theologian and reformer, John Calvin. This is what Calvin said. He said, I fear lest through my recommendations falling far short of what they ought to be, I should do nothing but obscure its merits. In other words, he's basically saying he looks at himself and, and, and his qualifications and he thinks the best thing that I'm going to probably end up doing is actually obscure the merits of the book of Romans. And then he goes on and says this, when anyone gains a knowledge of this letter, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. So if John Calvin one of the great fathers of the Protestant Reformation, was concerned that he might obscure the book of Romans. What in the world is Mike Leonzo going to do to this book? But ultimately, my hope is in the Lord. My trust is in his spirit that, that he will empower me and, and Pastor Ben and Mike Bongo as, as we take you down through this journey through the book of Romans. And hopefully, uh, God willing, we'll be able to accurately communicate what is contained in these pages. And my other prayer is this, is I'm praying 
that you guys and ladies will have open hearts. I'm praying as, as we look at some things that are controversial at times, that, that you'll step back and, and you'll let God's word speak for what it is with, without all the noise of society kind of flowing into it and allow God's spirit to, to, to touch your heart and to, to work in your heart in whatever unique way that is in, in a way that he worked in, in, in my heart over this time. And uh, we're going to explore the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. And that's a really important thing. And I pray that when we get on the other side of these 16 chapters, some, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 weeks from now, whatever it takes, that we will be different because God has changed us through his word as he has changed millions of other peoples through the centuries. So let's get started. If you've got a Bible with you, we're going to open to Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's Bibles on the tables around the room. Romans chapter 1 is about three-quarters of the way, four-eighths or five-eighths of the way through the, the Bible. You'll find it kind of near the back. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7. And if you're able to stand... If you were, uh, would do that, please, in honor of God's word, as I read it to you. <clears throat> Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through, him, or through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Ben was charged uh, to spend some time telling us a little bit about who this guy is by the name of the Apostle Paul. He also was charged with spending some time telling us about the audience who was actually receiving this letter, uh, the men and women who were living in Rome, the Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus Christ. And what Pastor Ben explained to us is that one of the primary focuses of this letter was for Paul to forge a unity between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians who were, who were worshiping together yet had a lot of differences. You had, had men and women who had grown up as Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and then you had men and women who had, had grown up as Gentiles, non-Jews, many of them pagans at the time, who had ultimately come to faith in Jesus Christ. And now these two groups of people, they're trying to figure out how to do life together and, and how, to, how to work together. And, and Paul, he's never visited this church. He didn't plant this church. He's hoping to come to this church one day. He knows he's got to go to Jerusalem first. Once he's done with Jerusalem, he wants to come to Rome, hang out with those guys, and ultimately make his way to Spain where he can preach the gospel in the future. And so what Paul does in order to, to prepare these people for his arrival and to forge this unity between folks is he decides that he's going to provide to them a detailed explanation of the gospel, which he articulates 
in the first 11 chapters of the book. And then in, in chapters 12 through 16, he takes and he applies that to their lives. So that's kind of what we're looking at. Now, for the Apostle Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ was absolutely everything. Look again at verse 1. He describes himself as this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. First and foremost, Paul says, you know what? I am a slave of Christ. Now, now there is a title that not a lot of people want to cling on to. There's not a lot of people scrambling to get the, the title of slave. But Paul brings that out right out in front. He basically says this, my life is not my own. I am owned by someone else. And that man's name is Jesus. I am in service to my master, Jesus. Now, this is pretty remarkable because despite his extensive education, his amazing intellect, this crazy pedigree that he has, he sees himself as absolutely bound to Christ, fully devoted to follow Jesus regardless of the cost. But he describes himself as more than just a slave. He also says that he is an apostle of Christ. Now, this is a pretty remarkable thing because if we know Paul's history, this guy, he hated Christians. He did everything that he could possibly do to crush the early church because he was a faithful Jewish Pharisee. And he saw that he was on a, he felt that he was on a mission from God to, to stop this, this ragtag bag of people who he believed were, were preaching false things. And so he went through the, the known world, basically, uh, arresting Christians, getting them thrown into jail, and in some cases having Christians killed. Yet this man, Jesus has specifically chosen and calls to be his messenger. The God of the universe can save a man like Paul. There is no one beyond the reaches of his grace. And what's the message that Paul says that he's supposed to deliver? Well, the message that he's going to deliver is the, the gospel of God. It's the very heart of what we're going to study in Romans. God has set Paul apart for one thing, this gospel, the good news. And in response to being chosen by Jesus, Paul has given his life to do this. And ultimately, it's going to cost him his life. Now, the obvious question becomes this. What in the world is this thing called the gospel? And perhaps the best and most succinct definition of the gospel is one that I learned years ago from the brilliant teaching ministry of Dr. Tim Keller. You've heard me uh, quote this several times. I'm going to quote it again because I think it's worth quoting over and over again. This is how Dr. Keller describes the gospel. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. He lays it out front right away. We are a messed up bunch. We are sinful people who think that we are good, but the reality is, in essence, we are a lot worse than we ever think we are. And then he adds this, yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dare hoped. Desperately sinful, 
yet desperately loved by God. Now, how much more honest and, and how much more hopeful is that than, than the, the trait gospel thing that I learned when, when I was 18, 19, 20 years old, that God loves you and has a perfect plan for your life? Because the reality of this is, yes, God loves you, and you know what? That perfect plan that he has for you may not be so wonderful. It may actually be very, very hard. And that doesn't discount God's love. It doesn't mean that you're any worse than anybody else. But, but the path that God may put us on may be very, very difficult. And that's the beauty of that definition. Because Paul helps, or, or Tim Keller helps us to understand, we got issues in our lives. Yet Jesus loves us in spite of those issues. And while Keller's got this great working definition, uh, there are a couple core principles in here that I want to show you that, that, that the gospel rises and falls on. So, so let me give them to you right now, up front. What we're going to learn here today is the gospel was created by God. Didn't get created by anybody else, it's created by God. Number two, the gospel is promised in the Old Testament. Number three, the gospel is centered on Jesus and Jesus alone. And we're going to unpack these things together. So let's look at this for a moment. The gospel was created by God. In verse one, Paul says that he is set apart for the gospel of God. And, and the, the term gospel comes from a euangeloi, which means good herald. In the first century, if you were a military leader and you went out into the battlefield and you secured a great victory and you wanted to let the people back home know about the victory, you couldn't go to the press pool of CNN that was embedded with your troops. They didn't have that. There was no way to quickly communicate what was happening out on the battlefield. So they would send these fellows that they were called angeloi, messengers, it's where we get the term angel from, they would send them back home to announce this great victory that has occurred. And as such, the gospel is good news about something that has happened in the past. And Paul, he's simply the herald. He's the one who delivers the good news. He's not the creator or the source of good news. God's the source, and that's why the Apostle Paul calls this the gospel of God. Now, this is important to understand. Paul didn't create it. The disciples didn't create it. The prophets of the Old Testament, they didn't create the gospel. And certainly, pastors and theologians in the 21st century, they have not created the gospel. God alone has created the gospel. And as such... You and I don't get to determine the contents of what is in the gospel. We don't get to tweak the gospel in a way that it fits our philosophical view of the world or in a way that fits our sociological or political or, for that matter, religious view of the world. But people try to do this all the time. There are all kinds of, of other false gospels that are out there that, that make their way through uh, Christian churches. Some people manipulate the gospel of God into something called the social gospel. 
which basically says this, that you are saved by the good works that you do in society. That's the social gospel. Others manipulate the, the gospel into the, the prosperity gospel, which says if you have enough faith and you claim what you want, God is going to give you what you want because of your faith. And if you don't get what you want, it means that God didn't fail you. You just simply didn't have enough faith. Still others manipulate the gospel of God into the liberation gospel, which is, is focused exclusively on freeing people from political and social and economic and religious oppression. And still others manipulate the gospel of God into the gospel of legalism, which offers a, a false gospel through one's performance, whose mantra is, if you want God to love you, you need to do this, that, and the other thing. You need to follow these rules. You, you need to do these things that he said you should do and not do these things that he doesn't say that you should do. And oh, by the way, you need to do all these other things that we've made up for you to follow or to not follow. And while behind all of that stuff, there are probably some folks with good intentions. The bottom line is this. They're still false gospels. And they're human-centered, and they're powerless gospels that do not save because they're not God's gospel. And the gospel, which we will discover in all of its beauty and hope for the next several months, will show that to us in this book. Now, Paul elaborates what he means by the gospel of God in verse 2. He says this, which he promised, which God promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. In other words, the Old Testament intent, the purpose ultimately is to point to the good news of the coming Messiah. And we see God's gospel playing out in the Old Testament from the very first pages of the very first book of the Old Testament, Genesis. You see, after blatantly sinning against God, the very first man and the very first woman, they cower in the darkness and they're trying to cover their shame of their newly discovered nakedness with fig leaves. And they're doing exactly what you and I do when we sin against God. We try to cover up the evidence of our sin while at the same time projecting a false goodness. We do something wrong. We know we've done something wrong. We try to cover up that thing that we've done wrong, and then on top of it, we try to behave in such a manner that everybody thinks that we're, we're a really good person. And that's why you, you see stuff on, uh, you know, on television, on the internet all the time that, you know, hey, there was this person, and they seemed to be a really, really great person, but oh, by the way, you know, they had four girls on the side. I mean, that's the whole thing with Bill Gates right now, right? Everybody saw Bill Gates as this amazing, brilliant guy who uh, was in love with his wife, and the reality was not what the press releases were showing. The fact of the matter is we all live that way. Every one of us. Every one of us puts on, we, we hide our sin, and then we try to put on a good face. Let me explain to you how this works by giving you an illustration from the Leonzo family. Back in the early 2000s, um, our kids were still really young. Nicole was probably, you know, maybe four, 
five years old, something like that. John would have been, you know, he's four years older than her. He'd have been about, you know, maybe eight, nine years old or something like that. And Mikey's two years older than John. He's 30 years old. I still call him Mikey. Uh, so our kids, uh, they're at home. And uh, we live in uh, a uh, ranch house built in 1957 over here in Susquehanna Township. It's uh, got three bedrooms on, on the, the main floor, and then we have like an exposed basement, and it's, it's finished down there. And so the, the kids have their rooms upstairs, and uh, Kathy's on a really important telephone call. And so uh, she gives the kids instructions that any parent gives uh, their kids when they're on an important phone call. Just please be quiet. Play quietly in your rooms. When I'm done with the phone call, I'll come back and I'll re-engage your lives, basically. And so uh, she gives those instructions, and then Kath heads downstairs to the basement to have this telephone conversation. Well, for some reason, uh, Nicole, who's our youngest, and Mike, who's our oldest, they start to make all kinds of noise. And Kathy's in the, in the downstairs, so she does not know who's making the noise she just knows that noise is happening. And so she does what we all do when we're on a telephone conversation and someone's distracting us. She puts her hand over the, the speaker part or over the microphone part of the phone and she yells upstairs, shut up! <laughs> and she thinks that will fix the problem as we all think that's gonna fix the problem, right? Well, lo and behold, the kids keep making more noise. And so there's a couple more of these parental outbursts coming from the basement. And Kathy finishes the phone call, and she decides that she's going to head upstairs, and uh, she's going to take care of the offending party or parties. Now, uh, I remodeled our entire home, and back, we moved in in, in early, two, mid-2000, or mid-January, June, July of 2000, and uh, I put in a, a new staircase from the downstairs to the upstairs, and my carpentry skills were still in kind of their infancy stages, so those stairs that I installed, they're a little bit squeaky, so you cannot make it from the downstairs to the upstairs without letting everybody in the house know that you are, are transitioning from one level of the house to the other. There's no stealth mode in the Leonzo house at all, and so... Uh, Mike and Nicole hear Kathy on the warpath. And so they decide that they're going to uh, cover up their sin and they're going to project, project their goodness. And so they begin, you know, Mikey engages in playing Barbies with Nicole. And uh, Kathy walks, you know, uh, I don't know whether she was walking, sprinting, whatever she does, she looks in Nicole's room and there is her beloved little daughter, Nicole, who back in those days could do no wrong, uh, playing kindly with our wonderful first child, who was just such a pleasant child to grow up, and everything was fine. She looks in there, oh, they must not have been doing it. It's definitely our middle child, John, who is typically the one who's getting in trouble in our family, because as we described him, he was a party waiting to happen. And uh, so she goes blowing into John's room where John is innocently reading a book. And Kathy uh, engages some parental discipline on John. Now, I know that this happened because when I was writing the message and I was trying to think of an illustration for this, I thought, I remember there's a time where the kids were making noise, but I don't remember exactly what happened. 
And so I, uh, I called Mike uh, down in Ecuador using uh, you know, Skype or whatever it was, and I said, Mike, do you remember that time where mom got upset? And he's like, yeah, I kind of vaguely remember that. I'm not sure what happened. I'm like, you're absolutely no help whatsoever. So I called John. I'm like, hey, John, you remember that time mom was on the phone and you guys were making noise? Oh, yeah, I remember that time. John has absolutely knows everything about that time. He's been in therapy for years because of it. And so he describes it to me, you know, and basically you have Nicole and Mike and they're acting a whole lot like Adam and Eve. You got Kathy, who was acting not so much like God at that moment. And you have John, who has now been scarred for life by this great injustice that was inflicted upon him. But isn't that what we do? We're just like Nicole and Mike. We, we try to downplay our sin and lift up our goodness. And yet, unlike Kath, God sees through all these futile attempts at self-righteousness. And how does God react to Adam and Eve? Well, the first thing that he does is he confronts their sin. He goes to the man, asks him what happens. The man blames the wife. He goes to the wife, asks her what happens. She blames him. She blames God. And she uh, ultimately blames the serpent. And actually, Adam blames God because he says, it's the wife that you gave me. And, uh, and then Eve blames the serpent. But then something amazing happens. After confronting their sin, he graciously clothes them not with vegetation, but with the skin of an animal. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Up to this point, sin had not entered the world until that very point. And when there was no sin, there was no death. And now God comes along and he provides something to cover their nakedness. And what is it? He provides a skin of an animal. How do you get a skin of an animal? You kill the animal. Death enters the world, and it is a preview of the great sacrifice that will one day be made when God the Father violently takes the life of God the Son to cover your sins and mine. And we see this gospel foretelling in this Jesus foreshadowing cycle of sin and forgiveness and rebellion and provision and suffering and healing over and over and over again in the Old Testament. You've got the great flood, which is what? Punishment. Yet you've got the ark, which is provision. You, you've got slavery in Egypt, yet God provides what? The Passover. You've got rebellion in the desert by the Jews after they've been rescued out of Egypt and provision of the promised land. You've got a, 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 a den of lions where there's a man thrown into the den of lions, and yet God keeps the lion's mouths shut. You've got the fiery furnace and three young men with unsinged garments and a terrifying army incapacitating sword wielding giant against a courageous young boy with nothing more than stones and a sling. You see, time and time again in the Bible, God's people sin 
They experience the consequences of that sin, and then God graciously intervenes and brings restoration to them. But the Old Testament is more than just a foreshadowing of Jesus. It's also filled with specific prophecies that point to Jesus. And the New Testament writers, they're quick to point this out. In Acts chapter 8, we find one of Jesus' disciples, a fellow by the name of Philip, using the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah to teach an Ethiopian eunuch about the gospel. Listen to what happens here. So Philip ran to the eunuch and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And the eunuch said, how can I unless someone guides me, which is a typical response sometimes when you're reading things in the Old Testament. And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer, it's silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation, for his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, And beginning with the scripture, which would have been the Old Testament for them, because there was no New Testament at the time, he told them the good news about Jesus. In a similar fashion, in Acts chapter 2, you find Peter, and he's sharing the gospel with crowds of thousands of people in the, the perimeter area of the temple. And nearly half of the sermon that is recorded is what? It's taken right out of the Old Testament. And the other half of the recorded uh, sermon that's, that's there in Acts chapter 2 is commentary on the Old Testament. And even the risen Jesus himself in Luke 24, he used the Old Testament to point him, to himself as he spoke to the men on the road to Emmaus who were confused by the events of the resurrection that had just occurred, and this is what went down. And the men said, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Old Testament, folks, He interpreted to them all the scriptures said concerning himself. You see, the ultimate purpose of the Old Testament is to point people to the gospel, the good news of forgiveness and restoration and salvation through Jesus. And it's the very gospel that that God has been proclaiming to human beings from the very, very beginning. So that's what we've got so far. We basically have this. God created the gospel, and the gospel is promised in the Old Testament. One final thing, one final foundation. The gospel is centered on Jesus and Jesus alone. Look again at verses 3 and 4. It says, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. See, what what Paul is teaching here is that the gospel is about a person. It's not about an idea. 
You see, Christianity, it stands apart from every other faith system on the face of the planet because it is uniquely centered and uniquely connected to its founder. You take Jesus away from Christianity and you no longer have Christianity. Now, that is not true for other faith systems. You see, Buddhism, it's not about Buddha. It's about Buddha's teaching. Buddha lived and died. He's not coming back. The the Buddhists are are not looking for Buddha to show back up. So they're able to to look at his teachings and not be affected by anything about Buddha. The same thing happens with people who follow Confucius. It's all about what Confucius taught. It's not about his life. It's not about him living and dying and coming back again. It's not about that. The same thing happens in Islam. Islam isn't about Muhammad. It's about what Muhammad taught. Muhammad died. He's not coming back. In Islam, they're not looking for Muhammad to return. But Christianity, Christianity is all about what Jesus did. It's about his his life, his death, and his resurrection, and the fact that he's coming back. You take away Jesus. You take away the virgin birth, the sinless life, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and there is nothing left of Christianity. It is totally meaningless without a risen Savior. So what does Paul tell us about this Jesus, about the one to whom he enslaved himself, about the one to whom the entire Old Testament points? First of all, he says this, Jesus is God. Look again at verses three and four. He says what? Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God and power according to the spirit of holiness, By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Twice he mentions that Jesus is the Son of God. And when you read the words, the Son of God in the Bible, it refers to divinity. It's not talking about us being sons and daughters of God. It's saying the Son of God. Definite article right there. As such, Jesus, he's fully God. He's eternal, he's infinite, he's all-knowing, he's ever-present, he's all-powerful. And we see these claims of Jesus' divinity throughout the pages of the New Testament. Look at John 10. Jesus is walking through the temple. He's minding his own business. A couple Jews come up to, to Jesus and they ask him, if you're the Christ, In other words, if you're the Messiah, the Son of God, tell us plainly. To which Jesus responds plainly. I and the Father are one. And immediately, the Jews pick up stones to kill him. And as they do, they say, it is not for good works that we're going to stone you. In other words, we're not going to stone you, Jesus, for all these good works that you've been doing. Let me tell you why we're going to stone you, Jesus. But we're going to stone you because of blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself a God. We live in a culture right now where people look at Jesus and say he was a great teacher, or he's a wonderful inspiration, or a great example. In the first century, that's not what the Jews who walked alongside Jesus thought. 
They didn't see him as a great teacher. They didn't see him as a a wonderful worker of, of miracles. They saw him as a person who claimed to be the son of God, and they wanted to kill him because of that. And Jesus never tells us that he is a good teacher. He never tells us that he is a great example or a good person to follow. He tells us that he is God and God alone. But he wasn't alone in claiming his divinity. So do his disciples. In Matthew 16, Jesus says to his disciples, "Uh, who do you say that I am? And, And Peter, he happens to have a really good day here because typically he's putting his foot in his mouth. But on this day, Peter hits it out of the park. Peter says this, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus replies these words, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And if there is any other place in the entirety of the New Testament where the divinity of Jesus is displayed on full force, it is the events that occurred on the weekend of April 3rd, 33 AD, the weekend when Jesus was crucified and raised again. And as Jesus utters his last words, it is finished and gives up his life on the cross, there are a number of things that happen. First of all, as he's hanging on the cross, what? A a darkness descends upon the land. Day becomes night. As Jesus' life is extinguished, the earth shakes, rocks split, The veil of the temple is torn in tune. We're told that that tombs broke open. And there in the midst of all of this is a man. He's a Roman centurion. He he is an officer in charge of a hundred other Roman soldiers. He's the dude in charge of crucifying Jesus. He's the one who gives the command to nail the spikes through his wrists and through his feet. He's the one that gives the command to put the crown of thorns on his head. He's the one that tells them to shove the spear into Jesus' side. It's this guy. He is thoroughly pagan. He is a a, a worshiper of, of the many gods of that day. And he sees all of this stuff. And this thoroughly pagan man says, truly, this was the Son of God. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is fully God. And he has ways to make sure that people know that beyond a shadow of a doubt, including darkening the sun earthquakes, and graves being opened so that hardened heart people might come to himself. But he's also fully man. Look again at Romans 1, 3. Concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. When you see the, the, the term flesh in the New Testament in the Greeks, it's sarks. When you see that, it's not just referring to this organ that is over the entirety of our body. It's also referring to to humanity as a whole or our human nature. And the idea here is that Jesus is not just fully God, but he's also fully man who needs to be of the lineage of King 
David. And this is important because the Old Testament prophesies time and time again that the Messiah would come out of the lineage of King David. And we see this, but I want to look at one place in particular. It's a familiar prophecy that we hear every Christmas season or Advent season. It's Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What does that prophecy say? It says, a child will be born. In other words, a human being will come into physical existence just like you and I have come into physical existence on a specific date. This child will be a king and his reign, his rule will be from this time forth forevermore. There will be no end. Jesus is the child. He's born to a virgin named Mary who came from the lineage of David. He's adopted by a father by the name of Joseph who comes from that same lineage. It is Jesus Christ who is both fully God and fully man, who is at the very heart of the gospel. If you don't have Jesus in the center of the gospel, you have no gospel. Jesus is the good news. And like the apostle Paul, Jesus is calling you and me to himself, just like he called Paul. And as I personally consider that for myself, I find it absolutely amazing. What would God possibly want with me? I have absolutely nothing to offer him. I bring nothing to the eternal table. I can't even follow the Ten Commandments on a consistent basis. Like Adam and Eve, I try to cover my sin with whatever I can find. And when God comes near, either I try to elevate my goodness, which is a joke, or I try to hide from him. And why do I do that? Because I know who he is. I know about his holiness. I know about his righteousness. I know what he expects. And you know what else? I know myself. I know about my lack of holiness. And I know about my lack of righteousness. Heck, the things that I expect from other people, the way that I judge you guys, and I judge people down the street and my neighbors, the, the standards that I hold other people to, I can't even hold myself to those standards. And if I can't even meet my own sinful standards, how in the world am I going to meet God's righteous standards? And yet, Jesus still calls me, and he still calls you. 
And I believe that this is the call that he makes. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. How much poorer can you become? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul might live. Seek the Lord while he can be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord that the Lord may have compassion on him and return to our God for our God will abundantly pardon. That, my friends, that's the promise of the gospel. It's the promise that the holy God of the universe leaves the glory of heaven and comes to this cesspool that we call this world in human flesh in this God-man, Jesus Christ, and that this Jesus lives a righteous life, a life that we are incapable of living. How many of us, how many of us try? We really try. We want to be obedient. It's not like we don't want to be obedient. We try and we still fail. Yet he comes and he lives the life we're called to live. And he willingly goes to the cross and he takes upon himself the penalty for my sins. The lust and the pride and the greed and all that stuff that flows from this dark heart that that God should crush me for. He crushes his son. Think about that. Think about that. I mean, think about, I love Jimmy. I'm sure Jimmy's got struggles in his life. And Jimmy, I'm sorry for calling you out, but you're the first one I saw. You're the biggest dude in here right now, man. But you know what? Would I kill Mike? to pay for Jimmy's sins? That's what God has done. God God kills his son for our sins. What, what, What horrible news for Jesus, great news for us. And Jesus takes the full wrath of his father dying in our place. And he offers to us his righteous standing so that our debt is paid in full. So God is completely just. And then in this incredible act of mercy and grace, he puts upon us Jesus' righteousness so that when he looks down from glory upon us to those who've repented of their sins and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, he sees not the darkness of this heart, but the shed blood of his son. What incredibly good news that is. And if you have never received that, if you're in this place today 
and you've been going through life try, trying to obey all of God's commands, thinking surely he's going to have to accept me because I'm all that. Don't rely on that. Because you know you're not all that. We can't even meet Ten Commandments. That's just a little summary. How can we possibly think that God's going to accept us because we're, quote, good? I just happen to be a little better than somebody else. If you've never done that, today's the day of salvation. Today is the day to stop being the, your own God. Today is the day to, to cry out to Jesus and, and to confess your sins. He already knows them. You're not going to surprise him by anything. Confess those sins. Turn from those sins. Turn away from sin. Turn to God. Receive Jesus in faith. And allow that sacrifice that he made on the cross long ago apply to you today so that you might have hope in the present and life eternal in the future. Because today is the day of salvation. We are not promised another day. We are not promised another hour. We are not promised another minute. But we are promised life eternal in his son if we come to him. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good. And I thank you, Heavenly Father, for those in this room who have made that step or who have taken that step. I thank you, Lord, for the work that you have done in people's lives of, of opening their eyes to the depths of their sin as you have opened my eyes to the depths of my sin. And I thank you, Heavenly Father, that, that you have drawn them to yourself through the power of your spirit. And Lord, that you have empowered them to be able to confess their sins and repent of them and receive your son in faith. Lord God, thank you for salvation that you have brought to so many in this room. And Lord, my prayer this this afternoon, Lord, is for those who've yet to come to faith in you. I pray, Heavenly Father, that they would not see this message as a message of condemnation, but rather, uh, Lord, as a message of hope of, of, of one beggar simply telling another beggar where to find food, dear God. Lord, would you work in the hearts of those who've yet to come to faith in this room. Father, would you speak deeply into their hearts, draw them gently to yourself, so that they too might repent of their sins and receive you as Lord and Savior. And Lord God, as we prepare now to take this blessed meal that you have provided, I pray, Heavenly Father, that it would be a vivid reminder to us of the great sacrifice that was made on our behalf so long ago. And yet, Lord, that there would be hope in the midst of it, Lord, for the day that you come back to receive us as your children. And so, Lord, bless us this time. Lord, be pleased with us, not because of who we are, but because of who your son is. And it's through his risen name we pray, and all God's people said, amen.